Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with experimental musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Christina Vonsu, a musician who creates these beautifully orchestrated works. My favourite aspect of Christina's music is that she uses these huge, gigantic sounds, really panoramic a lot of the time. And yet where a lot of musicians use those kind of sounds to make the most grand and convincing, assertive gestures, Christina often uses them to create these constellations of uncertainty. There are these moments between chords a lot of the time where... It almost sounds like a shoal of fish or calibrating a change of direction and, and realigning their minds as they do so. Everything's flickering all over the place and suddenly it settles into alignment. Um, this conversation with Christina goes far and wide. This is probably the longest crucial listening I've done. And I was so happy that we managed to cover so much. We talk about... Firstly, two records that Christina has released recently, one in collaboration with John Also Bennett and Zinn Taylor, and another which I guess you could call her solo work, although, as you'll hear in the conversation, Christina has a lot of thoughts around the power dynamic between composer and performer. And also her... Album choices were great. I had such a good time with these. I know I always say that, but really, I've been enlightened throughout this podcast to many albums that actually I've inducted into my favourites. So if you want to find out more about Christina's music, go to christinavansu.com. You can find that in the show notes as well. And also she's on Bandcamp at christinavansu.bandcamp.com. As always, you can find out more information on the albums talked about in this episode over at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. Okay, without further delay, here's Christina Vonsu on Crucial Listening. Hello, Christina. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thank you very much for coming on. And you've brought with you three important albums, as my guests do. Uh, but I want to start by asking about a couple of releases that you've got coming out on the horizon, or at least one is already out at the time that we're talking and the other is due out. Uh, firstly, um, your collaboration with John also Bennett, um, Thoughts of a Dot as It Travels a Surface. Now, I understand that this isn't the first time that you've used drawings as inspiration for doing a piece of work i've seen that you did uh, performed inside sol lewitt's uh, exhibition at m museum how does this 
experience this recent one with with john compared to that last or or you know that previous experience of uh, working with drawings as an inspiration well there's an important um link and in fact it's important we back up a few steps and talk about how um the collaboration was initiated for thoughts of a dot and it's actually a three-way collab myself john also bennett and zinn taylor and it's uh interpretation of the drawings, wall-sized drawings, and the installation that he did in Munster last uh, May. And it was Zinn who invited me to, it was his invitation actually that um, transpired in this recording. And um, in fact, when I did that Soul the Wit uh, performance, it's now been a few years, I think it was 2012, Zen and I, Zen was there. He was in the, he was at the show. It was a small group of people and uh, he was there and his partner was there, Emily. So they were in the audience. And I think that um, experience planted a seed of some kind. And um, the situation in Munster was the perfect ground to pursue the idea um, in relation to his work. So the invitation to the Solowit exhibition came about um, because there's a music festival that takes place at that museum every summer. It's called the M Museum in Leuven. And the curator invited me with um, the comment, you can uh, choose the room you want to perform in. And uh, if you want, you can do something in conversation with the piece in the space. And um, that's all. And of course, I got really into that idea because I knew that Solowit happened to be one part of the exhibition at that time. So for me, it was there was no question I would choose a Solowit room because he was an artist that I've gravitated towards since I was a little I was a little kid. They have some of his pieces in the Kansas City Art Museum, and my mom was an employee of the art museum and. Uh, my mom went to art school, and I grew up in a community of artists in Kansas City. There were many, many trips to the museum, and I always really liked, even though I didn't, you know, know the discourse around his work as a little girl. But I, I liked his work. I loved his pieces. Hmm. And um, so it's a so. And then when I when I studied art in art school, I came to understand that. Um, he was a big part of the conceptual art movement, uh, the minimalist art movement, and his ideas went into a direction of a list of instructions at one point in time, and he published books. Um, some of his books were at the exhibition, too, uh, when I performed there, and I connected to his um, very easily to this uh, approach of creating a list of instructions and letting someone else execute the work, which is how um, his wall drawings are conceived. Mm. And since I was already, in a way, doing that with ensembles, um, I would prepare a list of guidelines and then work together with a group of musicians who would then perform the work. And um, that's what any composer does in a sense, but I was always doing it in a more radical sense because um, I wasn't writing strict notation. I was really writing a list of guidelines like he was. 
So I, I took that opportunity to really uh, get into that aspect of the preparation. And in that performance, I didn't play a single note, which I, I do sometimes. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And six cellos um, responded to the instructions. And I, I was conducting in a sense, but I was only really giving cues, keeping track of um, time more than anything, and cueing a few little changes. And we had agreed and um, notated the meaning of those changes, but only in list form and uh, with words, not with notes per se. So Zen was there, and I remember he came up to me after the show, and when it ended, he said, I'd really love to take home one of your scores, because I, I had um, also used Solowitz's graphic sensibilities and some of the scores. So I have to admit that they weren't all words. There was some graphic scores too. So I, I did a, a one score that was a band of black lines, similar to the works in the room that we were um, performing in. I was in one of the rooms with uh, floor to ceiling, black and white stripes, some vertical and some horizontal. So, and there's some great photographs of the event that my friend Julie Calbert, who has been photographing all the covers of all the records, number one, two, three, and four, and often um, taking some photographs at the concerts. There's there's some nice photographs in black and white um, that show me, um, you know, you see the scores and the black and white stripes, and then the room with all the big black and white stripes, and the photograph is black and white, so it's like a lot of meta levels <laughs> of uh, his work being translated through the invitation of performing in the room. And so, yeah, uh, Zen held on to one of those scores, I guess. I was like, yeah, here, take one. <laughs> and then all these years later, I think that, that he's a very thoughtful person, and we're friends. We That's first and foremost. We're, we've been friends for many years, and we've attended each other's exhibitions and performances over many years. So there was also a a contract of friendship and trust in place because we knew each other's work well and we we gravitated towards it in different ways. I, uh, you know, I've been to a lot of his um, shows and galleries over the years, and he's a he's a sculptor and he also does wall drawings and he's, you know, he's the type of artist that likes to really think through all aspects of work and he's a writes a lot about his work and art theory so this was a sort of a, a a lot of groundwork was already in place when he reached out and by email at first and just said hey i have an idea and <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's pretty much the nuts and bolts of the the setup and i'm a i'm a firm believer that setup is um, just as equal to um, product and performance. So this was this was quite a setup, actually. And when when he asked me, okay, let's talk about which instruments. We did it on a Skype. Um, John also Bennett was uh, obvious good choice. Also in terms of sound palette, John is a um, has played flute since um, he was very young. He's a synthesist uh, um, and uh, Zinn and, and some 
previous exhibitions had done a piece for flute. There was even a score written for an object he made in the shape of a flute. So flute was an obvious um, direction to think towards for me. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, the museum were really great about um, generously making the space and time for us to do what we needed to do. And um, so we, we traveled to the museum. We had one day to set up our equipment and um, decide how we were going to interpret the drawing. We didn't put too much thought to it in advance, except for making the setup as comfortable as possible for ourselves. And I'm glad we did that because um, it was like, you know, sometimes it's nice to take your time, but sometimes it's nice to have a definite um, time limit, which we had. There was going to be an audience coming in the following day, the Saturday, to witness what we had done. That was the plan. So we had to get to it and make quick decisions. And um, we recorded it in good faith, thinking, well, this will be, this is worth recording. Let's see what, what comes of it. And it turned out that it was a very nice recording. We were all happy with it. Um, artistically, and the, the audience were so quiet oh, wow. that it was such a it was incredible the, how good, clean the recording turned out. There's only one cough in the whole recording, yeah, and it's it's towards the end and it's in sync with the sound, so it's you barely hear it. <laughs> it was amazing. So um, it seemed like a it wasn't there wasn't much to think about in terms of releasing, and we're all friends with. Um, Shelter Press, Felicia and Bartholome, who run Shelter Press, lived in Brussels many years. They're friends with Zinn. I'm friends with them. So there was also a history there that made that, you know, we all were in agreement. This is something that we want to put out. So it all happened really fast and really easily. Oh, great. And I've really enjoyed listening to it. And as you say, I, I forgot that it was in front of an audience. I thought you'd recorded it when the room had emptied or something. No, uh, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, we, we thought we might have to do that. We, we considered that. But then it was, uh, uh, well, then, you know, you sort of do it. And even if you haven't listened back to the recording, it just, there was this thing like, oh, but no, that was the moment we did it. We, you know, it just came out and hmm. it felt really nice. So let's not redo it. And then, of course, on review, some weeks later, um, we reflected on, wow, <laughs> how did it turn out? It looks, sounds like we're in a studio. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's surely the, the biggest compliment, I think. Um, some of the most memorable listening experiences for me have been where there's been this mutual, unspoken, like very unspoken agreement that you know, listening is going to take absolute priority, um, which is really nice. Yeah, but, it's, it's a bit old school. There was <laughs> a lot of beautiful collaborations done in this spirit. I guess nowadays, if that's what you want, you find a museum in Germany and do it there. Good audience in the museum world of Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and did you speak to Zim about his thoughts on your interpretation of the score yeah that's an interesting point um i asked zen um when agreements were made and we knew it was going to happen i said do you want to send me some links just things like a a anything and he said no i, I oh, would rather wow. 
And then and when we were in the space, and of course we've shared music for years, I kind of know what he's into, and but not everything. So I thought maybe in the conception of this idea, maybe he'd want to like exchange a few things. Yeah. But I think it was really wise to um, decline any um, uh, response to input. When we were in the space, he was there. When we had that Friday to set up and figure out what we were going to do, he was. but he was in another part of the exhibition space um, finishing a piece of uh, wall drawing. And I asked, like, do you want to be in the room? Do you want to, should we discuss? And he said, this is, this. my, my role stopped, actually. And um, I, I prefer to give zero input. And I like that it was a, dis, you know, it wasn't just out of laziness or busyness, or it was really a decisive non-action. Wow. You know? Yeah. It's, it sounds like from from where I'm sitting and just hearing you talk about it that it's there's almost like a barricade being set up between the senses of sight and sound there where he's like okay I'll go as far as the field of vision <laughs> and then you pick yeah. up once you transpose into audio which is that's yeah. really lovely and vivid yes and it's and it's been it's been true to uh, it's really following through with the the basic fundamentals of the concept and not letting any preconceived or um like premeditated ideas on top get mixed in you know yeah and i it's been nice to watch this record get released because oh i had um the pleasure of seeing felicia and um, Bartholomew in Brussels a few weeks ago because Felicia performed in Brussels and Shelter Press, um, which they run without any car, by the way. They Shelter Press, they're based in um, France, and they do all the shipping via post office, and they put all record, their records in a, in a cart that they walk to the post office. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes, yes, very old school, and um, and of course um, they're they're um, building a very solid reputation, also on following through with very fundamental basics of a creative vision and not interfering too much, and and a lot of interesting projects have been released on their label, yes. and Boom, Boomcat, the distributor, um, has been very supportive of them, and Boomcat made a feature about this record. And that feature did spread far and wide, and thanks to that, and generally uh, there were others too that jumped up uh, in support of the record, and there was a really good energy around it. There was this exchange, even though I've been releasing records, it was, and you know, there's been a little of that, but there was a little bit of a explosion around the release, and and um, you know, in a relative way, and. Felicia and Bart um, told me when I saw them a few weeks ago that they actually sold out of the record. Oh, wow. Yeah, really fast. So I think there was some transference of the, you know, the it was kind of like each step was easy and we, we didn't overcomplicate anything. And then I think it also reached the public in a, in a, with some parallel to that ease of you know, I, I was a little nervous, to be honest, because I thought, well, maybe there's too much 
um, text that have like this discussion, you know, it's, it takes a, a moment to get all aspects of the collaboration out. You have to explain it a little bit. Yeah. And I thought that maybe in, in the form of a record release, some of that might get lost, but the people that wrote about the record immediately and even wrote me and said, you know, I just got, I ordered the record and I'm so excited to get it, or I just got the record. Um, there seemed to be a really easy transference of this, all of this discourse that was built into the, the idea. And of course the record itself is very attractive. It sends Zen and shelter press did the design together, but it's pieces of the drawings that are, um, the components of the, artwork on the record and um zen also had the idea to do a black and white fold out of the entire installation as an insert so you get the thing you pull out the record and then you also get this accordion fold style um <laughs> print it's really cool i mean i had i had someone write me um said my daughter has it up on her wall and i think she's drawn on it when it's great oh wow <laughs> Like, so there's this other aspect that was thought through, too, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of been, been fun to watch that go out in the world. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a, a few times there in relation to various aspects of this, the, I guess, the power relation to the different proponents involved in it. Like, you were given creative control by Shelter Press, but also Zinn gave you control over your aspect of it as well yeah. is it something that you think about a lot uh, the i guess the power relationships that are often kind of existing particularly when music is conveyed from a composer to a performer through a medium of score there's a lot of opportunity there i guess to to wield that power in certain ways is that something you think about absolutely i that's all i think about. <laughs> <laughs> really day in day out and i think there's a lot of work to do to to um at, at the foundation of all of those um relationships that you know i think unfortunately through the social fabric we live in we've we've um ingested the ideas of it really being um, a very militant hierarchy in terms of the roles inside of these agreements, especially in the the orchestra and the classical world, and I don't come from that. I don't come from inside of that. I didn't go from to a conservatory, but I found myself kind of rubbing up next to it because of the choices I've made and the instruments that I work with in the recordings, and it's a constant um, conversation going on where you give someone their own agency. You you set up a container of, uh, and, and you and you try to, um, you know, there's a lot of this invisible work that go and a lot of responsibility, a lot of maintenance over the relationship to keep things in balance. I believe in equality, and I think it it weakens the idea of uh, this, you know, genius composer or this soloist. That's a big term in the classical world. And the, the competition and the stories that I hear from the musicians that I've become friends with about their paths and what, what you know, the conservatory atmosphere conveyed to them. And even if it's a sense of feeling of impossibility, I, I will never be, you know, there's, there's so few roles um, 
if you want to think in terms of soloist, composer, conductor, and so forth, yeah, it's totally sets up a, a, a field of competition. There's a few spots. Who's going to get them? It puts you against each other. And I think it's a, it's a point of, um, like, a, like, you know, a very important point to discuss and a, and a time to critique it and maybe try and shake the foundation a little bit because music is absolutely not those things. Music is absolutely, um, has been since early man an activity that humans do together. And I think that what an orchestra can achieve sometimes is quite beautiful, but I, I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't have a classical music background, but I'm drawn to this world. So I go and I, I go to the orchestra. I see the symphony. I, I'm curious. But I notice, well, like if, if you really are watching closely, when, when it's all about achieving perfection, there's, and, and there's a tension in the beginning before it starts, you know, like getting into your seat and, you know, waiting for everyone to come on stage. And, and I get really excited about the first note, the first few notes, especially if they're simple long notes which i like <laughs> <laughs> but i i've sat in um um i've sat in symphonies um and looked around and watched a lot of people fall asleep and, okay not to not to discredit the older generation i have great respect but you know yes maybe maybe some people are tired and maybe some people you know drug themselves out to the symphony and you know, you know, I like I like watching people relax and take a nap. Even during my own performances, I think it's great. Hmm. But it's a, but it, w- it wasn't quite that. It was a kind of a checking out. Like, right. okay, the thing is, the thing is perfect, and it's being pre- it, there's like a a frozenness to all of that potential, and I think that it's you know we're presented something very superficial actually if you think about it and there's all those power dynamics back to your question Mm. i think those things are also something that weren't part of the birth of um the thing they never are but the tendency to want to wield power to want to dominate you know these these tendencies have really run rampant in that world and i think you 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 see them you feel them on some level especially because um there is a feeling of intimidation and exclusion around the whole thing and i i can tell you by experience that that's the case um (laughs) so yeah this is something to to that i that i you know, finding myself in a role where I'm uh, working with the sound of the instruments that come from the classical realm, I'm I'm like really on on left field. I think it's it's um, I felt it's shifted from total intimidation and what do I even think I'm doing interacting with these instruments? But what can I say? I mean, even if you you're you're so called uneducated. We have ears. I think that the sound of um, 
a couple cellos in a room playing one long note, you don't have to be educated in classical music no. to, to feel <laughs> the beauty of that. You know? Absolutely. So, so I'm coming from that part of the the thing, and I, and others are too. Thankfully, it's not. Thankfully, it's not just me who's thinking along these lines. Um, I think that a, a, a lot of people, even the musicians themselves that are trained and skilled, are having to relearn, learn how to reclaim their use over their skill, you know, yes. and not just, not just t- you know, believe that, okay, since, since a conservatory atmosphere tells me I have to perform on this very high level and go for this very slim you know, position kind of spot and, and anything else is failure. Hmm. This is, this is ridiculous. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on that note, I, I, this came into my head because I rewatched a bit of it the other day, but have you seen that film Whiplash? No, what's that? Oh, it's, um, the person who did La La Land, actually, like the film prior, but it's about a drummer at this very prestigious conservatory um, about his experiences as a young student basically being bullied and intimidated into being better and being presented mm-hmm. with the impression that he is forever failing and being given no reward or at least the tease of reward in order to improve. And I think hearing you talk now has just awakened this realisation of how much that was an observation of those dynamics that you're talking about, the sense that as a performer, you're <laughs> unless you're hitting note for note, you're not doing something of worth, really. The deviation is just that. It's a deviation rather than an opportunity. Yeah, and then if I may take it one step further, mm. um, I think there's something also to look at about the ultimate goal. It, the, the imposition of um, this is the ultimate goal, this is what success is, Yes. Um, that in and of itself is something that maybe, maybe you don't want to be part of all the components of that thing. Maybe that, that, that idea itself is inside a bigger concept of that's a ver- very um, bleak reality. Yes. Uh, very lonely reality um like how as a on a human level do you deal with whatever i could imagine goes along with living out that experience yeah you know i think there's there's some there's other options yeah it's just i i I really i don't accept that the singular notion of that success to begin with you know no absolutely yeah. I mean, to take this through into number four, the album that you've got coming up. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I was reading the press release for it, and I guess a lot of it relates to what we're talking about here. And it excited me so much just to read about the kind of approach that you were taking to working with these musicians. What What I'm kind of interested in is, and I guess I'm speaking from my own relationship with these kind of ideas, is that I am... 100% on board with the principles but my own monkey brain tendencies often want control and I, I wonder if 
When you're working with musicians in order to bring this energy into being this dynamic that you want, do you have to consciously throttle back? Or is that a more level playing field between yourself and the performers you're working with something that comes naturally to you? You mean, uh, you know, a presence of mind and... Um, Quite a broad, sprawling question, wasn't it? <laughs> I'll try and refine it. But I want, yeah, I just want to understand which, which point. Of course. Um, yeah. So, I mean, in particular, it was the notion of blurring the hierarchy, I think. Okay, yeah. And doing that. And I, I, I took that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the hierarchy between yourself as a composer and the performers you're working with, or, or were there other things at play there? I think I've been... Um, at, well, at this point in time, it's a thing that we do together. The musicians that um, performed on number four for the first time are position are musicians that I handpicked, and uh, a lot of them are musicians that I've been performing with for some years now. There's uh, members of the Echo Collective in Brussels who are doing a lot of amazing projects. Um, and specifically violinist uh, Margaret Hermont and violist Neil Leiter. And these two uh, are professional collaborators. They've formed a collective to um, work with uh, different artists, and it's really their intention to, um, although they also envision writing their own music um, as Echo Collective, they're people that, you know, are, enterprising themselves on this uh, collaboration. And I think they're on a very high level already of um, being open. And in regards to working with me, I've always enjoyed a feeling of equality between us. Mm. So this is, this is a very fundamental uh, piece that's really important. And, um, so the the exchange is very clear, but it, it's it's not always my words guiding that or my I, I always have the the barrier of knowledge between me. I have um, you know um, I, I don't know how to notate music, for example. So it's an it's a just a it runs through a, every. Um, exchange I have with uh, ensemble and it's actually a non-issue I thought it was going to be an issue I I got so nervous sometimes earlier on and even in that soloist exhibition I remember when I remember precisely when I made the first graphic score of this black stripes and I remember the thought passed through my mind Christina don't do this Christina don't give <laughs> piece of paper <laughs> don't do it and i think it's good to to look at that part of the brain that like i had the impulse i like i'm really quick sometimes like and i'm good with photoshop so i'm just like boom boom boom, boom. but it, it's like a matter of seconds before the freedom the brain i mean it's the brain's job I was talking to this about this with my friend Stav over the weekend. She was explaining she was she had read an article that that said there's tests being done that prove there's this um, six second rule 
You know, there, it takes six seconds for your before your brain does its job in protective mode. And right. protective protective mode is ultimately don't do anything. <laughs> because everything, everything is scary. For yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but you can train your brain to by doing it anyways. I'm a, I'm. This is one. This for some reason one of my abilities. I can, I can sort of negotiate that part of myself and say, I don't care. I'm going to try. You know, like that. A lot of a lot of the advances that have been made are actually on a very minuscule personal level. Even if it's collective work, very much. I, I'm starting to examine a bit the. The level of operations that are happening in these inside these collaborations, and it's it's always oscillating between group and individual, group and individual, group and individual, which is interesting. I think when when you're thinking on that level, you're really on that like, I mean, I, I started googling and giving myself many philosophy lessons because I think it's it's like a topic that. That, that spans psychology, philosophy, radical thinking, you know, what is this thing, this collective and individual? So to answer your question, I think it's happening amongst all members, all times. And I think from myself, because um, after all, it's me who like takes the record through all steps of the process and ends up collaborating with all kinds of people after the recording and before the recording. And I'm constantly negotiating something with myself. And of course, there's problems, there's walls, there's, you know, not everybody sees things the same way. You have to be a very open individual to, to have been, and like, well, number four is just an example, but all, all members of everyone that recorded on number four, very open-minded individuals, for sure. Mm. And, um, uh, and, and all that being said, now when I reflect back on the process, um, I feel like I'm only at the very beginning of the beginning of learning about how to operate in this um, space um, and and do a collective works. I see so many so many things that could be um, explored, and that you know, it's just really really the early 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 beginnings of even um, testing what can be done you know yeah is that exciting to feel like you're just at the beginning of that process it's a bit daunting <laughs> <laughs> yeah I thought, oh boy <laughs> I that. Like, there were there were parts there were periods in the, the um production of number four that i felt really overwhelmed i i felt like the you know just even like uh the amount of days we had to record, five days, longest I ever had before. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, thanks to the Belgian government, the Flemish community are very generous to me, uh, and they uh, funded the whole thing. Wow. But yeah. This is another piece that people often uh, don't realize is part of the process. I mean, how does this even happen to begin with? Well, there's a lot of things you have to consider financially and you know the more people involved the more the more expensive time expensive like forget money it's a time expensive project it take takes two years took two years this record hmm. to, so um 
of course, I'm the one that is uh, happy to commit to that time expensiveness because in the end, I'm going to release a record. But it's something that takes a, a, a lot of perseverance. And, and there were moments that I thought I recorded too much material and the freedom was wonderful. And we really, you know, we're like kids playing in the studio and same on the video shoot, there were really utopic moments that we were all kids with all these cameras and and rec- just recording. But then, of course, I have to negotiate the amount of material afterwards that was put down, and it was it was really a lot this time. So there were moments where I thought I didn't. I thought maybe I wasn't gonna find the other end of it. And then that's a lesson in and of itself. You know, there's there's um, a reason to put limits on things. And it was an it was really nice contrast to while I was sort of like in the quicksand of number four. I also did this um, project with John and Zinn that was a, a big reminder. Look how fast and easy. <laughs> and it, that's the cool thing about music. When you listen to the recording at the other end of it. If you're on the outside of it, it's just a music recording. It doesn't make a difference how much time went in before on one level, on the level of the listener, you know. Yeah. And speaking from that perspective, I've had just the most wonderful time with both of these records. I mean, number four is something that I had on us walking through town yesterday and it feels like just the most vivid thing. Like the images in my head were just like... I could have reached out and touched them. So thank you very much for putting together such a, a wonderful record. It sounds like that there's so much energy and, as you say, other resources that went into it. But um, from where I'm standing, from the perspective of just one listener, it's uh, yeah entirely worth it. It's wonderful. Why, thank you. It's nice to hear that. Uh, we should talk about some albums that you've brought to the table as important records, Christina. Um, yeah. One thing I like to ask... And it doesn't always really have an answer, but we'll see, is whether there was a framework that you used to think about the term important when you were picking these records. I mean, I've had people think about these, you know, their records as important because they informed their work as a composer or they informed their listening habits or, you know, they they kind of pick a particular thread with which to contemplate the term important. But was there any way that you thought about that term that informed which albums you picked here? Yeah, I think uh, each one fits into its own category. I think uh, Laurie Spiegel's The Expanding Universe um, was important to me because it um, really informed my work as a composer and a thoughtful composer and a composer who's dealing with electronics to some extent. And then I think uh, Vangelis was an obvious choice because he, well, I'm half Greek and I, um, my first three letters of my last name also are V-A-N. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've always, you know, Greeks are proud people and I have that, um, I have that history, and my father also had met him um, different points. We can wow. talk about that if you want. Yeah. And his music is a is a. There's something really incredible in his music, 
I mean, we all, everybody seems to agree on that. And so I wanted to include him. And then the Japanese record, this is, I, I felt like uh, picking out something that's a little more new for me. And uh, I only first heard that record green in 2017 because of um, spending time on YouTube and following the rabbit hole of YouTube. And so I thought it would be nice to include something that I um, learned about more recently, and, but that immediate I had an immediate um, connection to in, in different ways because it's, uh, it's very thoughtful, it's well-composed, it's electronic, there's a lot of space in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I'm holding my tongue to get stuck into anyone in particular, but I'll let you pick the ordering. I think we should start with Lori's uh, The Expanding Universe. Sure. And so why is this, uh, well, you kind of mentioned there why this album was important to you, but uh, do you recall, I mean, when did you first hear this record? That's that's an interesting question. I actually had to, when I when I knew we were going to do this, I took a moment and thought about that, hmm. um, and it was uh, not that long ago, uh, around 2012, maybe 2011. I had already released albums. I think number two was finished at that point, hmm. if I remember correctly. And I went to Kansas City, and an old friend. Um, I was hanging out with an old friend and his friend, so someone new for me, but it's like a, a deep listener of music, and we just decided, let's hang out and listen to records. And I remember um, my friend pulled out Laurie Spiegel's The Expanding Universe and was like, you got to hear this, Christina. And so I thought, okay, let's play, let's play that. And <laughs> we played a couple records, but that one was re like really the 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 record that got me i we he put on the b side and this is the side that i'll always have some uh, like uh weighted memory and i was listen i was reading the liner notes because i mean the the record itself is really cool looking and it and it holds up all these years later almost 40 years later yeah the, the color fade front and back and there's um, text printed on the front, and it's an interview with her. And I was listening and reading the interview, and something was like, uh, like all, it was a, it was a quite a like a I don't know what to call it. Like, well, I felt really energized by processing what I was hearing and reading what I was reading, and the way that she was talking about. Um, how she made that record. And I was thinking about what was it that I kept getting like kind of high off of. <laughs> <laughs> and I, re and I, and I remember it was the amount of times she referred to time. Hmm. It's, I made this, I, these are algorithms um, out of a function of time. These are like time varying structures I was like that, just that three words, time varying structures. I thought, that's what I do. That's, I mean, that's what I wanted. That's what I do too. Yeah. And 
because I, I've as a composer when I'm working at the computer, I've worked with different softwares, but I've never worked with a click track, and I've tried earlier I gave up completely but early on I tried because a lot of people advised me you know with good intentions this will be so much easier if you're working with ensembles to work on a click track then everybody knows the count and it can be conducted and so forth and out of efficiency of course that's that's very every so I, I almost forced myself for, for periods of time to compose to a click track and I just couldn't do it, it for me and so the idea of things being not on an actual regular click and more like just watching the waves in the ocean like or the the way the sea like waves come up on the seashore sometimes overlapping each other and the rhythm is beautiful and and meditative but not on a on a grid that's the way that i seem to work and and that's um that was a conceptualized in the construction of that piece on the B side. That's also called the expanding universe. And when I, I was actually yesterday looking up the liner notes so I could read them over again before our conversation. And I found it cause her, you know, her, her, that record was reissued. The original came out in 1980, but it was reissued by a wonderful label called unseen worlds not long ago and um when it was reissued some of the material that wasn't on the original came out with it too and um so there's this there's this if you google liner notes from you know laurie spiegel's the expanding universe you get a nice page that unseen worlds perhaps was put together and and you can read all the liner notes from the album and uh and some other interview pieces snippets and description her descriptions of the pieces and i just did a, a quick word count for the word time <laughs> and it appeared 69 times wow um, yeah so <laughs> and i was like oh wow yeah there's really something to the the thought process that went into time that I really relate to, so I think for 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 me that's basically what I got out of it. Yeah, which uh, which really helped amplify. Like it's really good as a um, when you're also kind of an outsider. It's when you when you find language that puts sense and you know on things. It's and it really gives you a feeling of. Um, Okay, maybe <laughs> it's not so crazy that I so inefficient way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It translates completely differently, and there's also the the matter of perception, how you perceive the piece. I like um, I like all kinds of music, but I've noticed as a listener, if I'm in, if I'm listening to music that is four four, which we all love. But um, or any kind of regular grid. As a listener, I notice that my my brain, um, we you quickly get the hang of it. Yes. Like, and it puts your brain in a very particular mode of listening. And when you listen to something that's more liquidy in terms of time structure, I mean, that's I think why ambient music is ambient music and. There's this psychoacoustic property of relaxation that happens, 
even in an extended drone sound, you know, if you take the rhythm out of it, at least um, a fixed rhythm, then you respond, your brain responds to it slightly different. And I, I like that um, aspect. And I, I like the, the state it puts my brain in as a listener. Yes. I mean, my very first interaction with drone music way back, you know, about 13, 14 years ago, I read a review of a Sun record that said that it fucked with the fabric of time. And I was like, I want a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, and then I listened and I really wasn't ready for that at all, as it turned out. I didn't know how to compute, but it's something that in the time since I've cultivated a real fascination with. And I think what's amazing about those liner notes is the oscillation she does between describing the technical details and the limitations they were having to work with and the labour involved, and then descriptions of musical influence or feelings and emotion that also exist within that. There's paragraphs where suddenly it feels like that they're trying to launch a rocket or something, and then you remember that actually she's doing a musical work which is embedded and drenched in artistry as well. It's such a good read. Yes, exactly. I when I reread it yesterday and 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 thought about it kind of freshly, I, I I also I was like, wow, she was a really good mediator between all the information she was. I mean, she's very um, she was really sharp, and she definitely, uh, you know, no question her handle on the technology and the fact I, that you had to walk between two different rooms because yeah. hardware and equipment were so big, you couldn't house everything in in one space and. So it was time demanding in that way too. And, um, and I, I, I could imagine that like, you know, it's a matter of, uh, hours and hours over many, many days that you, you kind of really get f like fully into that process to, to produce what came out on the expanding universe. It's like, you know, you kind of, you really dive deep mm. into to some process, and then um, I think the the technical aspects and her mastery over it was really well balanced with her personality, her disposition. There's a gentleness, even if it's the work sounds very sure of itself. Nothing like it's been reproduced, even even as um, technology and modular synthesizers ha make the work that she did. Um, readily usable to get into the space that it took to mediate and and it also include her in it you feel like it's a distinct work you and and you you sense she's a gentle thoughtful person hmm. she's like really i think mediate is is the operative word because she's really the mediator between her concepts and the technology and putting them into practice i think Often when you have a mastery over technology, you, you you lose a bit of sensibility. But she has both equally. And she's also has a background in composition. She went to Juilliard. She knows, um, you know, she's got mastery on uh, multiple platforms that all 
interact in order to create a work like that. And speaking of mediation, you've got a track called Laurie Spiegel on your third record. I mean, I read in another interview about how you gathered the raw materials for that track, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear you describe it because no doubt I'd butcher it, but I thought it's such a lovely process. Yeah, what did you... I'm curious what you you picked up. The fact that you had a modulated sample of Laurie Spiegel's music played to musicians over headphones and then they had to interpret it. Yes, yes. So, so I... I use basically the pitch, um, like there's this uh, thick um, drone, and then there's these this rhythmic information on top. And I I just took the the drone, so basically using the the pitch, and I I added some reverb, so um, it took out um, the, the the these rhythmic crests that were coming up. And I just wanted um, to try out uh, this as an idea, this the idea of um, eliminating all score and all communication, actually. And um, so even going beyond a list or an instruction and just using a pre-existing recording as the sole communication. And I did it, I did it as a test um, because we had time and it was a with number three also funded by the belgian government um there was a opportunity to record with a large ensemble and there was a string quintet so and there was a a marimba and a horn and a wind section and a soprano to three vocalists so um in groups i had all of the um, instrument sections do this exercise and then um eventually john also bennett did the exercise and it i think it was working off the principle that the drone is a really um i think that it's why it's been around music for all of you know for all ages if you establish a drone and um you sort of take away the inhibitions of um, pitch. It's sort of the same thing as making a graphic score that identifies the the pitches and nothing more, and lets a lot a lot of the musicians fill in. Hmm. But did it? It just did it in a slightly different way, without even having to put anything down on paper. So, and as a as a non uh, non trained ear, I just know I I you know I'm interested in that that all of the dimensions of the bed of drone in that piece, because uh, there's many layers. So, and with listening, you can, there's some variation to what you tune into. So I guess, you know, you're also kind of like entering the, the phenomenon of overtones and, um, you know, aspects of music that a lot of minimalist composers used but but my thought was um let's see what the freedom of just uh, uh, interpreting through headphones does and it was really it was really great process because you know you hear the track and you no longer um you know i uh you no longer see the connection even if the name pointed to the connection i wanted the the name on it because it was really an 
the origin point. But the all the different interpretation, each uh, group of musicians had a different interpretation. And um, if I wanted to make the closest translation, perhaps I would have just left it as, as the string piece because the string sound was the closest to the synth sound in a way, much right. closer than vibraphone, for example. Yes. But... Um, but the but even that was it was you know just a a, a one go um, we didn't redo anything and um, that wasn't the idea actually to do a direct string translation of the work it was to to you know use it as a tool of creative process kind of so all the all the instruments in the um, ensemble did their um, thing and the, the the three voices were really interesting. Um, we just had a quick dis- discussion, like before, you know. I said you're going to be hearing something in your headphones and just um, uh, listen and mimic, or in, you know, you can interpret. You don't have to stay really tight on everything, and also listen to each other because you're in a group. So maybe even we had one headphone on, one headphone off. And they just, the question was, well, what sound, like what vowel sound? And I said, freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so they chose, so they went, but in that that quick, like two second agreement, that was also a big factor in the final work. What they did was they all chose vowel sounds, but different ones, but they listened to each other and they're all, you know, they're, they weren't amateur singers. They all were um, classically trained. Um, and so they really found these cool harmonies, but, but you know, always in this kind of searching mode and not sure mode. And that layer of the mix, I think, was a, was a really important layer of the mix. And then I, I pre-mixed all of these layers into an, a, a five, and it was a five-minute excerpt. So I, I pre-mixed this five-minute new mix. And then um, I had John also Bennett um, on a series of synthesizers play on top. And I think that he just, at that point, listened to the pre-mix I made. In fact, he didn't listen to Lori. So he just kind of freestyled on top, and he did these really cool arpeggios. Mm, yeah. One of synthesizers and then i took some of those recordings and slowed it down on a software called pulse stretch that i use often just to stretch sounds and slow them down famous freeware software and um there's so what you hear on the record is those arpeggios but they've been slowed down a little bit so you hear them articulated a little more elasticized and then that became the final layer. So all of all of these steps ultimately created an entire new vocabulary. And uh, then, you know, this is, goes back a little bit to the CV Jab and Zen. Who's doing the translating? And this, is, this always, like, changes everything. In a way, our interpretation of his wall drawings were a subjective translation. And in this case, each... Uh, musician also made kind of a subjective 
through the contractive agreement, this is what we're going to do. It's an experiment. Let's try. Mm. And a few questions. Like I remember the strings asked, should we go really flat or should we be, you know, even if it's a drone, do you want us to be really flat or more expressive? So I get, you know, one question like that answered and then you're, you've defined a, a mode of recording a sound that bypasses all of the steps of conception, of notation, of pre-tweaked perfection <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um yes. i think it's really nice as well the idea that laurie placed herself and her ideas into these sprawling machines and then almost your process is a re-condensation of that energy back through a human mediator it's almost like the reverse process there's something very satisfying to hear a um you when when i hear you talking about that just to know that it's almost come full circle yeah and um i think i think uh, i'm i'm the type of person that doesn't always feel the need to add 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 i mean i think that's another byproduct of the world we live in and well actually waste is a byproduct of the world we live in. <laughs> yeah so much of it and so sometimes and I, and I know the kind of pressure I feel as someone who's making records you know records ultimately have a length and what do you put on them and and what I like the pressure of having a an idea and a and a really new idea that that's this another thing I've been thinking about I think the 20th century came with this um because of the history of the 19th and 20th century and the way that um, cities were built up and machines were introduced. I think um, everybody really wanted to believe that everything will every single thing was new and let's, let's celebrate all the achievements that are, are done in this new time. And, you know, in the topic of Lori Spiegel, she's got a great Facebook page, by the way. And she, she posted just yesterday this, um, uh, there's been a, I don't know if you've seen it, but I guess BBC made a documentary, Tones, Drones, and Arpeggios. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I watched, I found, um, I streamed it illegally somewhere. I watched it yesterday. I watched episode one. And of course, there's there's now a little bit of a, critique going around it about like oh well they left a lot of people out and <laughs> you know uh the because technology emerged and was new i think it opened the door for a lot of people to get their hands on the, the machines and um of course the the rich history with the radiophonic workshop there's all these individuals that created these beautiful compositions um and Lori uh, was in New York working at Bell Labs and had access to the equipment. And when something's not been established, I see the same thing in early video work. I went to art school, so I studied um, art history. And, of course, when you get into contemporary art, there's there was um, a lot of lectures. And, I, you know, we got to get really into the birth of video art. And there's... 
there's something I like that exists both in early electronic music recordings and early video art. There's a naive sense of exploration because a lot of definitions of what the medium, you know, a, a lot of what happens after things go out into the public view haven't happened yet. So there's this liberation in that too, which is now we no longer, we are no longer in that time. Yeah. Um, now I've gone and, oh yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes, sorry, I spiral. I, I don't know where I'm going, but I wanted to say that the, the, um, you know, I, I caught it because Lori Spiegel posted it on her Facebook page, this tones, drones, and arpeggios, magic of minimalism. And I, and I watched it. And what really struck me was, um, these like statements, like, what does it say? Like Terry Riley, like coined the name minimal music. And there were these, there were these, um, really grand statements here and there in the program. I actually thought it was pretty good, to be honest. You got to get a nice view and, and current interviews with these guys who seem like, you know, they've had great lives and they, they're, they're doing things that inspire me a lot. But, the, but, the, but this, like, um, overview of... Um, look at all the new, um, the, the move, what the movement brought and changed the world. And <laughs> I'd say it's a little bit silly. Why do we have to look at things like that in, for, in the first place? And who, in a, who did this or that innovation? The truth is that technology emerged and people were playing around with it simultaneously. And yes, the world um, recognized certain individuals more than others but yeah then back to the same point of success and you know what why is why is like being level one means you know main name attached to a movement uh the ultimate goal you know the music contains a lot more possibility and freedom than that i would hope it almost felt quite antiquated i think that it felt reminiscent of when perhaps documentary was a means of distilling information, which was difficult to get otherwise. So it's like, let's get the headlines in. This is a durationally restricted form of relaying this information. And if this is someone's only ability to interface with this, what's the bullet points that they need to know? But it felt yeah. strange that a documentary should still feel like that it's giving you that form of information instead of, okay, so if you search minimalism in Google, you will get everything you can get from that documentary on the first page of search results. So why don't we highlight the stuff that's maybe on page 35 <laughs> that actually yeah. history has chosen to uh to relegate through regurgitation exactly. of the same stuff yeah. it's very strange i thought yeah yeah that the, was the, like the tone of the thing hmm. and um and for sure the this yeah you like this i don't know if you it's kind of sounds too judgmental to call it superficial but it really is just pulling off the top layer of the thing yeah and you would hope that also in the it's 2018 and conversations are have been happening for years now that go much deeper and why not include all that?
Well, we should talk about your second record, Christina. Um, if you'd like to tell me the name of it and um, maybe a little bit about if you can recall where you first heard it as well. Okay, so this is Vangelis's opera Sauvage. Interestingly, it's the same year as The Expanding Universe, 1980. And um, the thing about Vangelis is he has such a catalog. You can um, really get lost in there, and you'll come across a little bit of everything. I mean, there's there's some things that, you know, I can't listen to at all. <laughs> there's, some things, <laughs> there's some things that are, like, pure masterworks you know and uh, so at one point uh, I think I think around the same time that I learned about Laurie Spiegel I was I was in Kansas City I remember being in Kansas City at one one summer and just kind of sponging in sponge mode listening to music and I downloaded his entire catalog um, and I didn't make it all the way through it's quite difficult but <laughs> I, I started to to just pick and choose, and um, I kind of, I kind of made my own categories. Like, um, and then, I, so I got more familiar with his work because you, you know, you, it's um, there's there's just so much to it, and I didn't want to only know the most famous things. And then once, some years later, I was in a small town in France. I been to a couple artist residencies. And I uh, was with a friend, and we found a little market in this little tiny town near the artist's residency. We went to get some vegetables, and there was a guy with a box of records, and he had the coolest records. <laughs> <laughs> she bought a couple records, I bought a couple records, and that was one of them that I bought. And it turned into a record that I really enjoyed playing around the house. It's a really lovely uh, record it's um, kind of goes fast too um, yes yeah so so I, I i I knew I wanted to talk about Vangelis and I thought of that one because it's become kind of the most the one that I've been listening to m- most lately yeah well yeah it's interesting that you came into it through two completely different means and one that's I guess more associated with the old means of making those chance discoveries in the bottom of record bins, yeah. but, but also doing that kind of omnivorous download as well, which I do too. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to go through everything and almost build an audio biography for myself. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You you kind of approach them through both both means. There, it's nice to know that the you know, record bin diving is still very much alive and can live on, alongside that. Yeah, yeah. It's the, I mean, the, ha- having the physical object lends itself to playing it and listening it still hmm. against the, the endless hard drive space that you can amass music on. That's something I'm, I think we all struggle with a little bit, like how, how to listen to all this downloaded music or how to remember it because it's not in front of you reminding itself yeah and there's so much i have so many folders of music yes so. that's that's true i mean what does your kind of generally what does your relationship with record buying look like in that sense i mean are you someone who will i don't know try download or, or stream and then go okay this is something that i want to give more dedicated attention or how does it work generally with you 
I think I just, um, it comes at me how it comes at me. And I, I, um, I'm not like a, I'll, I'll buy records, but I have to say not as much as some friends of mine. So I don't have that, uh, compulsion to do it. Although I, I, I enjoy it. Mm. Um, but it's a little more, um, coincidental, you know, I like, like at the, at that record fair, um, or if I'm in a, you know, it's something that I do think about, like, uh, going to seek out the record store. If I'm in a new city, it's an obvious thing for me to do. And it's a nice, it's a nice starting point when you're in a foreign city to find the record store. You yes. can still do. <laughs> it is so nice. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so they definitely serve a purpose. Um, but it's also funny how they are um, going away. And, um, but also funny enough, they're opening. When I go to New York City, there's record stores opening. and. Yeah. Um, little record boutiques and um, places that survive off of discog sales combined with physical sales. And you see, like, there's this cool record store in Bushwick called Human Head, and it's got a really nice vibe. And you can um, – there's the, like, new arrivals box, and that's really the good box because everything's mixed in. And you, you find, like, really good new age ambient records and also hip-hop and metal records. And there's a record player. You can still listen to the record before you buy. And there's the guy in the front that you buy the record from. And then there's the guy in the back that's like um, on a computer entering all the new arrival info constantly to the to Discog. So they're like, it's it's kind of cool to see both operations happening, and that's how they survive. And that's so that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because we had a record store open in my old hometown of Bournemouth and I remember walking in there and they seemed like the most lovely people and were basically epitomized everything I love about record buying they loved music and wanted to talk to you about whatever you were buying and that is just so electrifying for me when you're making a purchase you just want to listen to it twice as much but in the back of my mind I was like I didn't say anything but I was like guys is this a good idea like yeah. a record store now have yeah. you seen you know spotify what's you know, youtube are these not things to you but they i went in there more recently and they're like we're setting up a second store and i was like oh this is amazing like there's there's rationale for doing this and there's definitely a sect of people who haven't just been swept into the tide and left everything behind you know it's, it's really <laughs> uplifting yeah so important and and i i catch myself thinking those thoughts too but it's exactly that that kind of um those those individual choices against the the way that we think things are going that um keeps i mean the, the, yes. the fact that records are still um produced in fact there's an overproduction crisis in the u.s and record making number four was um stuck in production for some many months um and it's something of course labels don't like to discuss too much because they're just you know they want the the audience the buyer not to feel the weight of 
the production process. That's always hidden. Right. But the truth is, any record coming out of the U.S. now, this year, if it's from an independent label, has gone through quite a... Uh, like a difficult process because there's um, there's only so many pressing plants in the United States and record demand went up and independent record uh, labels are, you know, there's, nobody's fighting, but it's just a matter of um, the bottleneck effect, you know, trying to shove too many things into a small opening and um, the machines themselves are old and finicky and to get a good clean cut takes a few times now and nowadays a few more than they used to because the machines are and there, there's like a whole revolution happening where some some people are trying to introduce new machines and open new plants but um, it's at the crux of it almost having died out so right. it's going to take time before there's some new, um, you know, new system in place. So the, the old system was uh, so close to death that it, um, the people that are still in place are really uh, overloaded with the demand. So, but yeah. it's it's people people still loving the the format and buying it that kept it. And I guess DJs, you know, I don't know. It's a mix of everything. Yeah, um, but it's, yeah, it's pretty nice. I'm, I'm, I'm like a, I'm kind of uh, fascinated by the technology that's still around. And being someone that works in audio and video, it's kind of fun to play with any all things that are still possible. And you know, with audio, analog tape machines are now kind of making a little bit of a like they're in, in the in the audiophile world, you, having a tape machine is suddenly a little bit of a there's interest there. Mm -hmm. People are going to the secondhand shops and seeing if they can buy one. Of course, they're worth nothing. I mean, you can buy them for nothing. You just have to take a little time uh, to restore them and get them used uh, up and running. Sometimes, but there's an interest there and. Uh, I think it comes from the, the the desire to have some physical, some touch on things. Like, you know, when you're on the computer all the time, it affects you. You're in the screen world. And um, even having a joystick becomes like a, like a tactile tool. I think, yes. you know, there's this, <laughs> this urge to have those kind of things. Um, back in our lives. I am wondering when that bottleneck will give way. I guess that people are just waiting to see whether this is some kind of, you know, a panic that's going to subside and people will settle down on digital, you know, just in case loads of people set up pressing plants and are then, are then left <laughs> out in the cold because everyone's over records, right? Yeah. And this is, I'm going to speak now for a, a large, uh, a large minority. That's a paradox, but the, <laughs> like a, a, a rare few, but I, I have a few friends that, um, believe, um, and they're in positions to know a bit, you know, they're, you know, involved in a record label or travel a lot. They, uh, are in the business somehow. They believe that CDs are going to come back. It's happening in Japan. Apparently CDs are the top selling um form of music 
Yeah, someone was telling me about that the other week. They say they run a record label out of Berlin and they were like, whenever we go to Japan, we load up on CDs because that seems to be the bestseller, which is, you know, feels yeah. bizarre. But I, I love it. It's a great format. It's not as unwieldy as vinyl can be, but still very tactile. It's kind of the sweet spot for me. <laughs> yeah, and there's always this feeling that Japanese they're kind of they know what they're doing so maybe mm. something to it maybe it's going to spread this way who knows um to return to vangelis um yeah <laughs> i couldn't think of a good way to segue back in but uh, i <laughs> <laughs> um you mentioned right at the beginning that your dad uh met him on a couple of occasions so how did that happen yeah, so my dad was a young man in Athens, and um, he got all kinds of jobs pretty young, and one of them was working at the Athens Hilton. Um, he was a room service boy. And so um, at that period in time, Vangelis was, uh, it was pre-Aphrodite's child blowing up, um, but Vangelis was already known in the scene as being, uh, you know, in, in bands and a huge talent. Um, and, uh, so Vangelis had a, a job at the time as the pianist in the bar at the Athens Hilton and yeah. And the bar was one of those rooftop bars. Um, and it was called galaxy bar, I think. And (laughs) you could go like chill at the galaxy bar and Vangelis was there as like, you know, the local kid getting paid to play piano for the crowd. And um, my dad said that he was already, like, you know, kind of so amazing that friends my dad's age would, um, like, tell him, can you get us into the Galaxy Bar? So my dad would help sneak his friends in, just (laughs) watch Vangelis play piano. And... um, and Vangelis, when he needed a coffee or something, that was my dad bringing him a coffee. And, um, you know, so they were just like, you know, shoulder to shoulder working at the same place. And it was before all the explosion. And my dad also knew him again later, some years later in Paris, because uh, my dad lived in Paris and Aphrodite's child really established themselves in Paris and um, my dad would hang out with Lucas, the drummer, quite a bit in Paris, too. And so my dad was around as Aphrodite's child was really getting international attention. And then, um, you know, eventually they split up and Vangelis became composer that he is. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And yeah. Was your dad into Vangelis? Was it something that was, I don't know, played around the home or anything like that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, we didn't have, my mom and dad, we had a record player, but and we didn't have a huge um, record collection. My, my dad is a total music fanatic, um, but his taste is a little more like, you know, the Rolling Stones and Aphrodite's Child for sure. And so, and, and when, when Vangelis, um, did, um, the, won the Oscar, I remember like we, we had to talk about it, you know, like this is Vangelis and, 
um, he did the the music for um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? The famous famous Chariots of Fire. Yes. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, there's some some. It wasn't until much later that he told me the stories. You know, I think he saw me with a. I don't know how it came up, but he's like, you know, I know these guys. And <laughs> my, my dad has a lot of stories. So they come out and at different times in funny ways. Um, but yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, and it, it's somewhere in the back of my mind. I feel like there's such a close degree to Vangelis. It's kind of like, like if it really came down to the line I could maybe meet him you know? <laughs> through through my father and through the way that Greeks interact with each other, which would be very informal, just like someone getting someone's number and then someone, oh, and then through a series of getting numbers and then, you know, just calling each other up and being like, hey, remember me, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so if you wanted to, you could set those pieces in motion. It's part of your arsenal. Well... <laughs> <laughs> something, something that's yeah maybe possible in theory <laughs> yeah wow. but, you know my dad would would um i think my dad has been um really um a part of my love of music and my interest in music and he's also pointed to not just vangelis and as you know through his own personal history but also Another Greek composer my dad introduced me to, at one point, Eleni Karanindou. She did uh, a lot of film score work, and um, she did the film score for Ulysses Gaze, okay. which is an experimental film. Um, her, it's incredibly beautiful work, but my dad really made a point at one time to play. Um, to, he bought me a stack of CDs, actually. he went, When he was in Athens, he went spent like a whole day record shopping, went to all the record stores in Athens and got as many of her CDs as he could. And and then next time I saw him, he handed me the stack of CDs. So it was very, very sweet, yeah. So, yeah, if you'd like to tell me about your final choice, Christina, that would be great. And um, I think you mentioned first hearing it on YouTube. Is that right? Yes. So the, the final choice is Hiroshi Yoshimura. And I picked an album called Green. And I came across it um, just uh, leaving YouTube open and starting with a window of some ambient composer I was familiar with. With, and through the algorithm of YouTube, it eventually brought up Hiroshi Yoshimura's Green. And when you have these like long listening spells, it's funny how so you you immediate the brain immediately recognizes I haven't heard this before. What is this? Mm. And then you find yourself turning to the screen and you're seeing this Green album, Hiroshi Yoshimura, and what is this? And then you know it's a, it kind of I can 
sometimes it's really fast. I'm like Googling the name really fast. What is this? Who is this? What year is this? And so, you know, it ended up, it's a 1986 album. And, um, he, he's, he has a beautiful catalog. I've since, um, listened to all the albums that I can via YouTube. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, YouTube. (laughs) I, I also learned like, it's nice how it kind of, this phenomenon uh, happens simultaneously because of the YouTube thing. So I later I mentioned his name to a couple different people who said they found him the exact same way. Same here. Yeah. So this is very cool. I'm really like, I mean, a lot of people complain about free streaming of music, but I think, I think there's, well, in my, you know, I don't want to get into that conversation, but I, I like, I, I love that I discovered him and um, and I so enjoy listening to him uh, and there's uh, there's something really um, light and tender almost but very precise soft and in, in this in the synthesizer com- compositions and it's just really nice music to listen to I, I took it I, I had his this album playing recently in a, on a walk in a park near my place here in Brussels. There's a, there's a park just a few blocks away that turns into this kind of foresty, urban... It's a park, but it's really cool. You can get lost in there. And there's paths. And so I, I listened to the whole album, and it really takes you into a nice, dreamy, light, relaxed state. It's yeah. very positive and and as i was like the album was kind of rounding out i was back towards the entrance of the park so no longer in the paths with like the forest tree like woodsy feeling but and there's this small field and then gated entrance to the park it's really lovely the sun was shining and there was a little girl with her father and she was blowing bubbles and the bubbles were like kind of coming up into my really strangely the bubbles were just like wafting towards me and then like hovering in front of me and i had a laugh because it was almost too much hearing the <laughs> hearing his music and this like really pleasant like moment and they were the other weird thing is they were really far away so that even if i was standing there staring at their bubbles the, <laughs> because of the soft wind i was far away from them enough that they had no idea i was i was like caught in this blissful almost too bl- blissful bubble <laughs> <laughs> that's so perfect <laughs> I think this record is really striking. I I think there must be something to it because, as you say, a lot of people have discovered it on YouTube and there's so many albums you could discover there. But I was very struck. I have no idea how I came across it, but it came on much like yourself and my ears pricked up and I was like, what is this? Um, But it's very, like, therapeutic, like, incredibly so. Mm. Um in a way that I guess also in the, I mean, as you say, it's another conversation entirely, but the bustle of internet recommendations and zigzagging around the internet is 
puts the brakes on really it's a pocket of stillness that just stops the algorithm and suspends it for a bit and i i don't know whether that's why it's stuck out it's not some means by which i usually encounter music but yeah it's it's a lovely record (laughs) yeah Um, it's a good good testament to the current trend of paying attention Attention to the 80s era, specifically Japanese records, there's been a lot of reissues that have um, gotten um, a lot of lists, uh, records that kind of, for one reason or another at the time, didn't translate or didn't have the resources. Or I, I don't know what, every story is different. Mm. But there, the fact that vinyl has also survived... And there are people that are digging and digging and digging and just like wanting to find these gems and and um, the the eighties uh, Japan was a fertile time. There's so much stuff and so there's this 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 point about the the reissue playing a role and and we're already our ears are already kind of perked up in that direction and so there's like a little opening there. And then the fact that the YouTube algorithm exists and sends it through somebody. I mean, there's some, someone uploaded it. Yeah. You know, so I don't, you know, I guess maybe if we Google search, we can read about that. But for me, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so but the fact that we're listening to it and responding to it. And I like that you say it's therapeutic because I, I totally agree. I think it's a property of music that, often is considered too subtle and against the this notion that we we want to celebrate artists and soloists like I was talking to before even if this artist was um, a all in one package composing everything himself it it was on a like a a plane that was a little more subtle or maybe two, I'm guessing, I, I don't like to make assumptions, but may, maybe there was like, uh, uh, there was something about it that just didn't stand out at the time. Sometimes it takes time for things to to be in demand, but it's it also shows that us as listeners, we're, we're ready and in, in a position to want to have music play that role yeah. again. Absolutely. Well, I have some kind of ill-researched and probably incorrect theories on this, which (laughs) when I I read an article about, I think, this record, but also a couple of others that have sprouted recently from this Japanese ambient scene in this particular moment in time, which was apparently during a period of great economic proliferation in Japan and Tokyo, which almost casts these records against that backdrop as a an antidote and i'm wondering whether it's again to do with when we talk about the degradation of attention that the internet is having on us and the turn of the conversation to means of pushing back against that that these kind of records which initially existed as a almost subversive escape from you know extreme kind of growth and a lot of noise this is something that people are looking for again. It felt like that it plays that role for me in terms of it makes my brain stop, but that's something that I've been floating around really in my head. 
Yeah, I think I agree. I, I think there's also the, the level of the, um, even if it's not in an immediate thought, there's a presence of mind that, that that individual had to have to sit down and make those recordings. Because mm. there it is, there's some, there's certain qualities about it, a really lovely spaciousness. He doesn't ever want to fill everything up. That's a tendency, you know, out of, you know, need of acceptance and all these other things. You want to, you want to add, 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 fill, 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 do, 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 be all these things. And I think um, his music doesn't bother with any of that and doesn't, it's, it takes some courage to put space in music. It's uh, something that has been a topic of discussion for some years, but I think this is a good example. It's melodic, but it doesn't, um, like, uh, I don't know. It comes out of you when you make something like that, you gotta be in a, uh, you, you have to, I mean, again, I'm assuming, but yeah, you're, you are, um, just doing your thing. Basically this person is doing it, doing their thing. Yeah. And I think we, we're, we're really eager for, examples of that and when when you veer from that even like an iota it's just there's something you can sense you know you just sense it and i think that the like something that gets celebrated like i i and from the phenomenon i see lately is novelty wearing off faster and faster and faster so something comes out and you know presents itself as being so new again this thing about new and and um and uh, records, the most mainstream records, they're flying in and out of our view so fast now. And the newness of it, the time that we're meant that we're allowed to engage with the newness of it, I mean, there's constantly another one, so it's all constantly exciting, but it's this up, 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 you know? Yeah. And and then and then and then it's out. It's just so old, so fast. It's new, it's in, then it's out. And so if you're not going to be if you're not interested in that then yeah maybe it takes 30 years for your record to catch anyone's attention mm. but i like i like that it's a i like examples of things that are just being what they are and then you know and then and following these stories and this is a good example of, a, of one that took that long took how long 30 31 years That's something that I'm going to try and bring round to your music in a way that if we'll see how I if I can articulate this. But basically, you you mentioned earlier about in reference to the Laurie Spiegel piece you did that there was a sense of searching and uncertainty. Do you think that there's any sense that those qualities are similar to say throttling back and not filling the space that? As you say, things are passing 
in and out of consciousness so quickly and is a sense that something needs to be loud and assertive in order to be heard and to lodge itself in um mm. is there do you see anything kind of i don't know subversive or interesting to you in particular about forefronting uncertainty or ambiguity or things that aren't say necessarily seen as fully formed yeah i think that um it's nice to hear the question formulated too. <laughs> it, I did my best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. It's it starts the language gets very tricky. We're we're not used to things that are on this subtle level and we're not we're not used to admitting our vulnerabilities and and um I think there's something to that. I I think that that there's such a diversity to all different approaches and every everybody's character and disposition. That's why I like I like reading Laurie Spiegel's Expanding Universe in terms of her mediation on technology, but also her her tendencies as a person, her personality. And I think I think that the this all the different shades of personalities and um, and viewpoints are maybe the thing that like I hope people are are ready to bring into the fold and I think the that it's 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 a it's a work in in and of itself to put um language on these things that are more on the outside or more that haven't been allowed on the inside or in the in the front of the view of things, mm. but even the fact that um, you and I are thinking about it in this conversation is already a step for me. And if it's and, and it's something that I I really believe in. So yeah, I think it's going to be more and more a part of the conversation around what I do, and I'm preparing myself in a way, like uh, making sure that I'm going at things from the right place because there's always an invitation to slip into like we like you know we were saying before this conversation started there's you have to watch yourself constantly there's an always the invitation to slip into the past the way things are done just sit back and be a little comfortable you know Mm. maybe you know because everything's a lot of work to make the record just you know talk about the superficial aspects of the record but i don't think that's that's something that I can do at this point. I think it's important to talk about the, these um, more subtle things that go into it, and it's and it and it does weaken the the narrative that we've we've heard over and over again. But uh, I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and. I'm really glad that we've taken because I think it is something that does require patience and failure as well in discussion and thank you for taking you know a solid two hours with me to try and probe (laughs) into some of those areas Christina this has been wonderful yeah thanks for for keeping the time there too yeah it's that's that's another thing that that like is like yeah it's it's it does take a little time to get all these things out there so thank you thank you very much you're welcome and if people want to 
keep up to date with what you're doing, is there a best place for them to be headed on the internet? Um, well, I do, uh, even if um, I'm not sure about Facebook, but I do put announcements on Facebook and Cranky, the label, um, also uh, puts all the, the news up on their Cranky Facebook page. And Cranky Facebook lets you also follow on all the great projects going on on yes. the label. So that's always a good place. And um, number four is coming out on April 6th. So uh, the record, uh, CD, and digital will all be available in the usual places. Um, and I do like when people share their thoughts with me about the record. So, you know, uh, messages can come through SoundCloud, Facebook. Uh, yeah. Great. I'll include links in the show notes to where people can get in touch as well. <laughs>